Amen. So <clears throat> we get into this uh, parable, the parable of the sower. Um, it's one of those parables that is obviously very, very well known. Um, but what I want to think about this morning is really this idea of hearing, the idea of hearing. Now, um, as you know, I'm a GP, so I know a little bit about how you hear physically. Um, so, so basically, you've got your ear here, <laughs> um, and uh, it's connected to your ear canal, which goes down, um, and the sound waves come through your ear, and uh, they hit your eardrum. Uh, the proper name is the tympanic membrane. And those vibrations then uh, travel through three bones, uh, the um, malleus, the incus, and the stapes, um, or we can call them the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. And they kind of act like a pump. You've got this shell-shaped organ uh, in your inner ear, and it's called uh, the cochlea. Um, and it's a fluid-filled shell, and it's lined with little hair cells, and those hair cells are called cilia. And when the cilia are compressed uh, by the fluid, it generates action potentials, so nerve signals. And those nerve signals then shoot up uh, from your cochlea into your cerebral cortex, and you hear sound. So, so, <laughs> so <laughs> if you learn nothing spiritually this morning... Um, you now know a little bit more about the physiology of hearing. Um, so that's the physiology of hearing, 101. But, you know, what Jesus is talking about here is, is he is talking about how we hear spiritually, about how we hear with the heart. That's what he's talking about. Um, that's, that's the key verse. I mean, the key verse really, looking down, is verse 9. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So how are your spiritual ears this morning? We know how to hear physically now, but can we hear spiritually? And Jesus talks, doesn't he? If we just look um, in verse 12, he talks about this kind of disturbing reality, really. He says, seeing that they may hear and not perceive, and hearing that they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And those words are words from Isaiah. They're in the context of Isaiah. And they're in the context of the people of God who have continually hardened their heart and they've obstinately refused to hear God. And eventually what happens is they become entrenched in their own deafness and their own blindness. And they are no longer able to hear what God has to say to them. But what Jesus does here is he really talks. The soils, you all know the soils that we've read about. The soils are really pictures of our hearts. They're pictures of the unseen states of our heart. And so what I want to talk about today, I'm kind of twisting it and turning it, and instead of saying, talk, pitching things in the negative, I want to talk to you positively about how can we develop a heart which hears? How can we develop a heart 
which hears spiritually. And if you think about it, that's absolutely key, isn't it? It's key in terms of when we become Christians, we need that heart to hear God in the first place, to come into a relationship with Jesus. But we never stop listening, do we? We never stop listening. We keep hearing Jesus at every juncture of our lives. How do we keep hearing Jesus? How do we keep hearing the Word of God? So I just want to go through this with you now. So if we look at, uh, first of all, if we look at verses 1 and 2, even before the parable begins, we can learn quite a lot from those two verses. The first thing about the heart that hears spiritually is it's a heart that pursues the truth tenaciously. It pursues the truth tenaciously. If you want to hear God, you need to be a truth seeker. If you look at what is happening in uh, verse uh, 1, you see that um, basically the multitudes go to see Jesus. He, he has this kind of floating stage in the sea. And all of, the, all of the multitudes go and they hear Jesus. Think of how incredibly attractive Jesus is, of how compelling he is. That the, the, the crowds, they go away from where they are and they're attracted to this man, Jesus. But I want you to think for a moment about where they're coming from. These are Jews. They're in the Jewish system. Um, and we know that that Jewish system is a system that has rejected Jesus. Um, if we look in the preceding verses, um, we can see that um, they actually accused, um, you know, Jesus was accused of being uh, demon-possessed, demon basically. Um, and Jesus said, you know, that Satan can't cast out Satan. So they come out of this system that had rejected Jesus. So the multitudes had come, not only had they physically travelled, but in a sense they'd metaphorically travelled out of a system, out of the Jewish system. Now we know that the Jewish system had a kernel of truth in it because Jesus said that the Pharisees and the scribes, it says they sit in the seat of Moses. So there was some truth, there was a kernel of truth in that system. But the thing about that system is Jesus also talked about how corrupted that system had become. And he talked about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so I think some of these multitudes who, who came to see Jesus, they'd in a sense seen through that Jewish system. They'd in a sense seen the hypocrisy of it. They've seen, they'd seen the way that the Pharisees' lives didn't add up with what they were saying. And not only that, we know that the Pharisees were teaching as commandments, the doctrines of men, in addition to um, you know, what God had revealed them. Um, and so we know that there was this corruption, there was this, this inconsistency in the worldview, and also there was a failure of the Pharisees to live up to the teachings of Moses. And so what happened was these multitudes, they had to leave this Jewish system with all of its hypocrisy and all of its inconsistency, and they went outside of that system towards this man in a boat called Jesus. You know, it says in Hebrews, 
in the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, let us go forth to him, Jesus, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. There's always a cost of going outside of the status quo. For these Jews, going outside of the status quo, going outside of that Jewish establishment, that could have brought upon themselves reproach, uh, stigma, social isolation. They had to leave that Jewish establishment if they wanted to find the truth, Jesus. Now, we're not Jews, are we, today, Um, obviously. Um, We don't have Pharisees and scribes in the same way. But we are all part of a worldview. There is a prevailing worldview that we are all within. And I would say that probably the, the main way I would sum up that worldview, that we are within in this culture, is postmodernism. And do you know what postmodernism is? I can't say it. Do you know what postmodernism is? Postmodernism is the idea that there really is no objective truth. It's the idea that truth is constructed from a variety of, of social and political discourses. Because there's no truth objectively, truth is all about power. It's just about which institutions have the most power to kind of control and to manipulate people. So that's the house, that's the camp that we're coming from. We are coming from the camp of postmodernism. The Jews were coming from the camp of Judaism. But we need to leave that. If we are to be truth seekers, we need to leave postmodernism behind. We need to leave the house we're in behind. We need to leave the camp and we need to come to Jesus himself. We need to have a heart, in other words, that seeks for the truth tenaciously, that seeks for that truth with all of our hearts. Now, what do we find if we're honest about postmodernism? What do we find if we're honest about the prevailing world system? We find the same things about that system that were common to the Jewish system. First of all, it failed to live up to its own moral examples. So postmodernism kind of trumpets these very liberal values of these very enlightened people who um, have a huge concern for the world around them, who are going to change the world. But as we look at the examples of the culture we're in, we see the failure of it. We see through it, we see the failure of it. And so we're driven to Jesus. But not only that with postmodernism, just like with the things that the Pharisees and the scribes had added to the law, we see the inconsistency of postmodernism as a worldview. Because this idea that there is no truth, it doesn't stack up to the reality of life. We know from lived experience, we know that there are certain things which are absolutely true for us. We know that it is wrong when children are abused. We know that it is wrong when children are starving in Africa. We know that it is wrong when people are sold into slavery. So in our experienced reality, we know that this idea of postmodernism, that all truth is relative, is a lie because it does not stack up with life as we experience it. 
We know that love is a reality. We know that beauty is a reality. It's not just an idea. So we see we have to move outside of postmodernism. We need to move outside that establishment and we move to Jesus. We move to him and he gathers the multitudes to him. And as we have that heart, as we learn to hear spiritually, we have that heart that pursues the truth. Um, and we know that the truth is it's definable. The truth is something that's definable, it's objective, but more than that, the truth is a person. And that person is Jesus. He is the truth. He satisfies that longing for truth, that, satisfa- that longing for moral consistency. It's all to be found in Jesus. And he was the one that the multitudes were seeking. Do you remember Pilate um, in, in the Bible? Do you remember Pilate when Jesus stood before Pilate? And, and Jesus, Jesus answered Pilate when he was in the dock. He said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? And there, those, that tiny question there, in, you know, it kind of encapsulates everything that our generation is searching for. What is truth? But I want to say to you, it's not what is truth, but who is truth? Who is the truth? Because Jesus says in John 14 and verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So that's my first point. We need a heart that pursues the truth. We need to be willing to leave behind our worldview to leave behind our preconceptions. We need to be willing to bear the stigma and to be thought that you're a complete idiot and a fool. Um, And we need to leave that. And we need to go to a definable truth. But not just a kind of a philosophical system, but we need to go to a person, Jesus. Amen. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is we need a heart that... um, that earnestly seeks after the truth. But the second thing is, that heart that hears God is a heart which is prepared supernaturally. It's a heart which is prepared supernaturally. Look at me again, look with me again um, at, at the soil, the first type of soil. And it says, as it happened, as he, as he sowed, some of the seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. I mean, the great thing with this parable is that Jesus kind of interprets it all for us, so we don't have to worry about what it means, which is great. Um, So it's kind of a parable of parables. It gives us this key that we can use for all of the other parables. Um, So Jesus interprets this, but the birds of the air, do you remember Paul? He speaks in the epistles, and he talks about the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Now, the air in the Bible talks about the demonic realm. Now, whether that is a physical, localizable place, not necessarily. It's more of a spiritual realm where where demons are active. 
And, and Jesus gives us this picture that every time the word of God is sowed, every time the gospel is preached, these kind of demon birds swoop down and they, they take out the truth which has been sown and they immediately remove it so that it can't grow into the soil and it can't germinate and produce fruit. These birds are constantly coming. It's like they're constantly swooping down. So in Norwich this morning, you know, I'm trying to, trying to uh, preach God's word this morning. Um, but that's probably going on at other churches in Norwich this morning, particularly this morning. It's a Sunday. And that's probably going on in many other parts of the world, that the gospel is continually being presented, the truth about Jesus. And we know the gospel is the only thing which is the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that can deliver people from death and from darkness into life. But what's also happening at the same time is Satan is continually active, seeking to remove that truth from your heart. He's seeking to remove the truth of God from your heart. All of the time, that's what's happening. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. I think this is very, very interesting, as I was reading about it. I just think it's very interesting. Because there's nothing that we can do as Christians, as pastors, as friends... There's nothing that we can do to stop these devil birds coming and removing the seed of the implanted word of God. We do not have the power to stop those devil birds coming. No human endeavor. So nothing we can do as humans. So I think this has implications for evangelism. So sometimes with evangelism, we have this idea that You know, if we just have lots of smoke machines, if we just get the music right, if we're just entertaining enough or funny enough, we can kind of penetrate into people's hearts and we can stop all of this. We can can get the seed to where it needs to, to be. But Jesus is saying here that it's a spiritual problem. No amount of human gimmicks can, 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 um, you know, can impact that, basically. It's a spiritual problem. It's prayer. Um, It says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, it says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So sometimes, sometimes we have this tendency to think that, you know, especially with evangelism and in other things, that, you know, if we just get the method right. Now, now I would want to balance that and say that obviously, We need to be sensitive, and Paul says, I've become all things to all men, so there is a balance there. But we also need to remember that ultimately, these things are spiritual realities, and that we battle for souls on our knees. But not only that, not only that, but when we are trying to minister to others, when we're trying to minister to believers, we need to remember that this Spiritual activity is continually present as well. And so the only way we can minister to others effectively is to couple that with prayer. We need to be coupling that with prayer. Continual, continually praying for people. Because we cannot stop the devil birds. Only the Holy Spirit can.
Only the Holy Spirit can. I want to talk about this verse briefly. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. I've said here, a neglected evangelistic method. You know, we talk so much about methods, don't we? But what's one of the Bible's evangelistic methods is prayer. It says in 2 Chronicles, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. So it is, it is an action of the Spirit of God. Mm. So, so we've said basically, a hearing heart is a heart that pursues the truth tenaciously. A hearing heart is prepared supernaturally. <clears throat> but thirdly, a hearing heart is rooted by saving faith. If we look at verse 5, it says, Some fell on stony ground where it didn't have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. So these are the believers who, you know, they go along to a crusade, and they're really excited, and Jesus is wonderful, and, and you know, and they, they raise their hands, and they sign a prayer card, and, and they're really, really enthusiastic about it for a week. Um, and then after the week, you know, they've had a bad day, um, you know, things have gone wrong at work, um, I don't know, and things just don't seem, outside of that emotional environment of the crusade, things don't seem quite so rosy anymore. God doesn't seem quite so present. But the thing is, do you know what the man at the crusade had been saying to them? He said that if you, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have peace and joy and, and your life is going to work out perfectly and you're going to be delivered from all suffering. So that's the message that they receive. But when the reality of life hits, one week later, um, it doesn't sound so good and it doesn't sound so convincing. What is the root here? What is the root here that will last? I think that's interesting to consider. What's the root that will last? Well, the root, I believe, is saving faith. The thing which roots us is saving faith. If we have had saving faith in Jesus, then we know that we know that we know that the outcome is assured. Because it says in Philippians 1 and verse 6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if we have that root, that root of saving faith, we can be confident that the outcome is certain. So a true work of God cannot be frustrated. It also says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So once that root of saving faith has taken root in your heart, you know you're going to get there. Isn't that good news? It's good news for me. So, um, good news. <clears throat> but if we think the root that's going to last is saving faith, how does saving faith come? How do we get that saving faith? Well, the Bible itself answers that. It says in Romans 10 and verse 17, it says, 
So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the word of God. So the implication of this is that the message matters. The message that you hear to begin with matters. Because if the message is wrong and you're believing in the wrong thing, you will not have saving faith and you will not have a root that endures. So in the example I gave there, the person who went to the crusade and unfortunately their faith fell on its face after a week, the issue there was that they'd heard a message which was not the authentic gospel message. And so from that, the root of saving faith could not come. Is it really the word of God that you've put your trust in? Is it really the gospel message that you've put your trust in? I want to say that very seriously this morning, because I think you know, God would have me say that as, as, as my responsibility for being here. What did you trust? What, what was the message you believed that made you think you'd become a Christian? What was that message? Was it that Jesus was going to help you achieve all your life goals? Was it that you had an overwhelming sense of peace one day in a meeting? Or did the message include... Repentance, turning away from your sin and towards Jesus and placing your trust in Christ. Did the message include that? Because if you're trusting in something else, the Bible says that Jesus will one day say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus said in Luke, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So if you've received another message somewhere along the line, hope it's not from here, but if you've received another message somewhere along the line, then it may be that you don't have that root of faith. However, the other encouraging side of that is, if you've received that message, if you have trusted in Christ, be assured that your future is secure. Be assured that one day you will be with Christ. But be sure on that point. Be sure on that point. So, so a hearing heart, a heart that hears God, is rooted by saving faith. <clears throat> but we're just going to move on quickly. <clears throat> a hearing heart is a well-weeded heart. A hearing heart is a well-weeded heart. It says in verse 7, it says, Some of the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Fell among thorns. Now I think there are two, two sort of types really. Jesus talks about this. There are two types of weeds that can grow up in our hearts. Um, two types of weeds. Now the first type of weed is pretty obvious. They're thorn bushes or thorns. Now thorns don't look pretty. They're obviously weeds, aren't they? No one, no one kind of 
you know, has, you know, is with a kind of a, is with a thorn or with a stinging nettle. No one says, oh, that's so beautiful, isn't it? Oh, I just love to have a garden that's full of thorns and stinging nettles. Um, (laughs) So they're pretty obvious. And what those things are is they're really the cares of life. And all of us, particularly now, I think we live in quite a busy, all you students, you've got all your cares, all of the exams and the deadlines. You think, I just want to get through this degree. I just want to get that bit of paper so that I can move on and I can achieve you know, all of the plans that I've got in my life. Or maybe you're a bit older and you're at work and you've, you know, you're wanting that, I don't know, promotion or you're just wanting to make ends meet. Um, or, or older still and you're retired and you're just kind of keen to know what God is calling you to next or whatever it is, that, but there's always cares and there's always worries and there's family issues and there's health problems and there's all these things that everybody, whether they're Christians or not, they, we recognise that they're thorns and that they're nettles, that they're obviously weeds basically in our life and they're very obviously weeds. And what those weeds do is they, they create a lot of inner noise, basically, within us. I don't know whether you feel noisy inside, but sometimes I, we can all feel, I think, I can feel very, very noisy inside. So there can be lots and lots of thoughts rushing around our heads, whirling around, how am I going to do this, how am I gonna, what's going to look like, blah, 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 all these things. And so we've got this inner noise, and this inner noise, Jesus says here, it threatens to drown out the sound of the word of God. I wonder if that's you this morning, that there's so much going on inside you, but you can't hear God's voice. You can't hear Jesus anymore. And yet, what would God say to this? Well, it says in Psalm 46 and verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. So we can be so busy in life and some people go through all of their lives. It always amazes me, you know, you're going along and everyone's rushing around and people are rushing around at work. But maybe they've never taken that chance to step back from life and say, what's it all about? What is it all about? And what does God say about my life? But you know, some weeds are not so obvious. Some of the weeds are not so obvious. Some of the weeds actually look quite pretty. Some of the weeds look like rosebuds or like dandelions. Well, I don't know if dandelions are pretty. Dandelions or buttercups, maybe. I don't know. Maybe buttercups. Um, and they actually look quite pretty. And they're all the things that are alluring to us. They're the promise of fame and fortune and position and success and all of those other things. But, you know, they're equally as dangerous at strangling out the word of God in our lives as well. They're just as dangerous. Um, <clears throat> It says in, uh, in, in Timothy, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So there's these uncertain riches, these things we, we, we kind of we bank our hopes in, and they're not necessarily bad things, but, you know, a good thing is a bad thing if it becomes a God thing. It's one of those Christian cliches, isn't it? But it is true. A good thing, nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with doing well in life, um, nothing wrong with having health, for example. I mean, who wants to be necessarily, God say you have to be ill, poor, and, you know, I don't think he says that. But the issue is, is that when those, those good things become God things, when they become the driving focus of your life, and then they choke out the word of God. They choke out the word of God. 
And that's really what happened. I was thinking about this. It's what happened in Luke chapter 12. Do you remember the rich man? And he'd spent all of his life building bigger and bigger barns. He'd spent his whole life building bigger and bigger barns. If I can just achieve more, if I can just get a new barn, and he'd spent all of his life, and his mind was filled with everything he wanted to accomplish. It was filled with everything he wanted to achieve. So much so that right through his life, probably God, I know it's a parable, But probably right through his life, God had been trying to speak to him through different things. He'd been trying to speak to him and say, listen to me, listen to me. You know, I'm here. I love you. I, I, you know, you need to turn from your sin. But all through his life, the rich man was too busy with his own plans. And then he only heard God when it was too late in the end. He only heard God when it was too late. And God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul will be required of you. So maybe that's you this morning. And if that's you, I would say, listen to God before it's too late. Listen to God while there's still an opportunity. Don't let his voice be drowned out by everything else in life. So that's quite heavy, isn't it, some of it? But I want to, I want to move on. And I just very briefly want to talk to you about my final point. And my final point is we've considered all the bad soils and we've considered all of the bad things that stop us from hearing God's word. But what about a good heart? What about a heart that hears God? Well, that's really this good soil, isn't it, in verses 8 and 20. Um, And it says a hearing heart becomes a fruitful garden. A hearing heart becomes a fruitful garden. Look in verse 8, it says, Other seed fell on good ground, and it yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. What kind of soil does the, does the good ground have that, that produces? Well, I would say to you that it is soft, tender soil. The book of James talks about it's the soil of humble acceptance, humbly accepting the word of God. The book of James says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of uh, wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So if you want to have good soil, good ground that's going to be fruitful and produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it needs to be the soil of humble acceptance, receiving with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The truth isn't flattering. That's the reality. The gospel is not flattering. In some ways, we realize in the gospel that we're more loved than we could ever imagine, but we also realize that we're more flawed than we could ever imagine. So we need a degree of meekness to be able to receive that message. But receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to receive, able to save your souls. But finally, what about the, uh, I want to talk to you basically about the fruit, about how do we abundantly grow lasting fruit in our lives, the lasting fruit. I love Psalm 1. It was my birthday um, over the weekend. I don't know who it was. But someone put some verses from Psalm 1 in my card, so I was very, very impressed with that. Because Psalm 1 is probably one of my favourite passages in the entire Bible. Um, but, but Psalm 1, it says these words. It says, those who are the good soil, those who have 
receive the word of God, it says that they will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and it brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither and whatever it does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Now I wonder if you want to be like that tree. I really aspire to be that tree in Psalm 1. Wouldn't it be great to be that tree in Psalm 1? That you're planted by a river of water, that you're continuously receiving throughout your whole life that spiritual nourishment, and that right through every season of your life, from the beginning of your life to the very end of your life, that you're bringing forth fruit, fruit in its season. Maybe fruit in its season that is... You know, in different times of our lives, I think we go through times when we feel, maybe I'm not being that productive for God at the moment. Maybe I'm not producing the fruit that he wants. But I think that fruit in its season means that there's a promise there that will actually produce the right fruit for the right season of our lives. So God will place us as believers and we'll be producing, in a sense, it's all the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of love. But it will be different types of love um, for different seasons in our lives. And that God wants. I want that to be an encouragement to you that whatever season of your life you're in at the moment, if you're planted by the living water, by those streams of water, then God's going to keep producing that fruit for every season in your life. And that's really encouraging, I think. And I think it's very encouraging when you consider it to what the ungodly's outcome is, what they achieve in their lives. Because it says that the ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind blows away. So everything that they've spent their lives trying to accomplish. It's a bit like that Johnny, Johnny Cash song. I don't know why I'm bringing up, that up. But it says, what becomes, what becomes of me, my closest friend? Everything I have goes away in the end. You can have it all, my empire of dirt, I think he says, or sand. So it all blows away. That's what the chaff is like. And if you don't plant your life in that good soil... If you don't have that right soil, the soil of humble acceptance, the only things you'll produce in your life are things that are going to blow away in the end, are things that are going to crumble, of an empire of dirt, of an empire of sand. But you know, if you plant your life by the rivers of living water, and the living water really speaks about the word of God, if you plant your life by that water, you'll continue to produce that fruit in its season. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Finally, what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love in all its different forms. Love in all of its many-coloured beauty, if you like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such, there is no law.